Good morning. Welcome to Santa Cruz Baptist Church. Uh, this is the second week of our outside edition. And if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd appreciate it if you opened up to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be diving into the first couple of verses in chapter 3. Uh, there are sermon notes for those of you who are note takers out there, uh, so you can get those and they're available. And while you turn to Colossians chapter 3, I think it's helpful to, to see if any of you might share this experience to kind of set the stage for what our text is going to be talking about this morning. You see, uh, our text essentially talks about what it means to be acclimatized to a different culture. And so you might have this experience, as I do, that going on a period of extended international travel and stay, you had to prepare for your trip or relocation. So, for example, if you went to a place that didn't speak the same language as you, you must have in some way, usually to a degree proportional to your duration of stay, learned the language. So maybe just staying a couple of weeks and so you learned some rudimentary phrases, or you were staying for a few months and so you tried to figure out some things about navigation and some important questions, uh, or maybe you were staying for an extended period of time and you really wanted to dive deeply into the conversational aspects of the language in order to be able to communicate well. You probably collected some supplies depending on where you were going. You probably prepared travel documents and important things to verify your identity. Most importantly, maybe you studied the culture, you ate the food and you drank the cultural drinks, you learned the standard dress. And maybe, depending on how long you were staying and what it was that you were doing, you looked into the history and the norms and maybe even important social customs that you were likely to interact with in your time there. In effect, you sought out and began to set your mind on the culture you intended on joining and participating in, and you began sort of a progressive transition in which you acclimatized yourself to the environment you were preparing to enter and find yourself in. And that's fundamentally what our text is about. This preparing for the eventual arrival in the completed, full, and realized kingdom of heaven by studying its culture and living today as if we were its citizens. If the previous section of the text warned us about leveraging heavenly visions of our authority for power grabs, this text invites us to seek eternal life in a legitimate form of otherworldly thought. That is, reflecting on where Christ is now and where we will eventually be with him. And so I'd like to open with prayer as we begin to unpack this dynamic. Father in heaven, even as I think about those words in heaven, they can seem so ethereal and surreal, yet they are, according to this text, our present reality. Give me this morning clear speech to articulate the meaning of this text and give us all awareness of spirit and mind to grapple with the nature of the kingdom and with our role as citizens Allow me and allow this text to simultaneously humble us and embolden us by what is on offer here. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our passage this morning is tied back into last week's passage and actually into the week before as well. 
So in order to sort of set the stage for us, I'm going to do an abridged reading of a few previous texts in conjunction with the text we're going to look at this morning. So I'm going to read Colossians 2, 11 through 13, and Colossians 2, 20, and then cruise on into our text for this morning, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. And it goes uh, something like this when put together. In him... Also you were circumcised in the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to their regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do you see how isolating the main concepts from their associated applications and explanations gives us a sort of flow of thought for Paul? We can now see that our baptism acts as a reenactment of us dying, being buried, and resurrecting as Christ died, was buried, and resurrected. Then Paul asks us, why if we... Why do we give in to legalism and exert legalistic rules on others if we are dead to worldly patterns, which legalism is one such worldly pattern? Now in our text, Paul goes on to explain the reciprocal of that, that having died to worldly patterns, we are raised to pursue new heavenly ones. And so he writes, if then you have been raised with Christ. In this sentence, almost every word needs to be unpacked. And so we just point out a few things. If, if is subjunctive, meaning that there is a condition to fulfilling the command Paul is going to give us. You cannot accomplish what Paul is saying without these verses, or in these verses, if the if clause is not met. And have been raised is a passive and aorist construction, which I know doesn't mean much to you if you're not a grammar nerd out there, but which means that this action is something that happens to you. It's passive. You are not the primary agent involved. And as it is something that has been completed, yet has ongoing implications, which is what the aorist tense points us to. So we have something that happens to you, has happened to you in the past, and yet has impact on what is taking place in your life today. So Christians are not in the process of being raised, but rather they have been raised. Now they are alive because they have been raised, and because they have been raised and are alive, they now therefore live. And so let's go back to this word raised for a second. Isn't the resurrection something that happens in the future? Yes, there's coming a day of total holistic resurrection when Christ brings his kingdom into full realization. But those in Christ are also resurrected now spiritually, having been spiritually dead, unable to live a life pleasing to God, we have been made alive to love, to follow, and to please him today. As one commentator put it, without denying the reality of 
a future resurrection with Christ, Paul, following his typical already-not-yet paradigm, asserts that those who belong to Christ have already experienced a spiritual resurrection with Christ because they are in him, and Christ has himself been raised to sit at the right hand of the Father, so believers can be said to have been raised with him. So then we get to this portion, with Christ. This might be the most important words here because they are the very heart of Colossians. Much of this letter concerns the intensity of the Christian's relationship with Christ. You see, the heartbeat of the Christian life is identification with Christ. Much has been made in data and statistical measurements for Christianity about shrinking attendance in local churches. Now, being a Christian is socially costly. Some are leaving the faith and leaving the church, simply trying to engage in, in a less obtrusive matter with Jesus. In other words, many are seeking a religion of loose association with Jesus rather than identification with Jesus. And this, any student of the New Testament will tell you, is demonstrably unbiblical. As Australian pastor Richard Chin points out, it's like loose association with an airplane. Loose association with an airplane will get you none of the benefits of the airplane. You won't arrive at the plane's destination by watching it take off, or even having your parents on the plane, or by helping your children board the plane. Even by driving down the runway next to the plane in your car while TSA chases you will not get you the benefits of the airplane. Dedicated reading of the departures and arrivals board on the airline's website will not get you the benefits of the airplane. The only way you get the benefits of the airplane is by being on the plane. More importantly, being in the plane. Similarly, one must be in Christ, having been buried and resurrected with him to receive any of the benefits of Christ. No loose association will do, but only the sort of identification, which means that where Christ is, you are also there. You are in him. So if we have been raised, then what are we supposed to do? Look at the rest of the verse. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We are supposed to seek things. First, to point out is, the verb is a present imperative. So again, getting back to the grammar nerd aspect, suggesting a continuing action, keep on seeking, as an appropriate translation. To seek is to look for something, it's to search for it, maybe to ask or inquire, to insist, to strive after, to endeavor to obtain. Seeking something therefore requires active and intentional pursuit. Active, meaning that you don't seek something by sitting on your couch. Seeking requires action, movement, energy, and it is intentional. You are unlikely to succeed in seeking if you go about things with an aimless or arbitrary activity. Any actual seeking is thoughtful and careful. It applies reason and strategy in order to meet the goal of discovery or finding. If this text wasn't divinely inspired, I would be tempted to revert back to my recent past as a high school teacher and deduct points from Paul for vagueness. 
things, the things, what things are we to seek? Well, Paul tries to help us understand this by giving us three phrases. These things are above, which deals primarily with the Jewish understanding of the universe that placed human realm between the realm of God above and the dead below. Consider that Jesus ascends to heaven. He ascends, literally, meaning that Jesus, when finished with his earthly ministry, actually went up into the air. He ascended. But it's sort of odd to think that if you started at Jerusalem and you just started rising into the air and eventually into the atmosphere and from there even into outer space, that you would eventually reach the throne room of God where we're told Jesus is seated at God's right hand. Rather, Jesus literally ascended, at least in part, to play off the Hebraic understanding of the cosmos. He went up, both literally and metaphorically, to symbolize his return to God. Thus, things above is also explained as where Christ is. We are to set our minds on the things above. The last time they saw Jesus, he was going up. And unpacked further, it is at God's right hand. This third clause gives us a little more to reflect on in terms of where the scripture is drawing this image. The concept of God's right hand is famously biblical. In fact, the most common Old Testament passage referenced in the New Testament is Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 begins this way. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now this psalm is written by King David. And King David says that the Lord, and if you notice in your Bibles, it's in all capital letters there, which means that that is God's proper name, Yahweh. And so God says to my Lord, the Lord of the King. But who is the Lord of the King, aside from God, who is also speaking? And who would God make enemies a footstool? Who would God go out of his way to humble the enemies of this person? Well, the rest of Psalm 110, the first seven verses, says, continues this way. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Scepter is a symbol of kingly or uh, monarchical power. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So we have rule. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your mouth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll get to Melchizedek in a second, but the passage goes on. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter the kings on the day of his wrath. And again, reference to the right hand of God. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the broken from the brook by by the way, therefore therefore he will lift up his head. Here you have King David again speaking to God, who speaks of King David's Lord, and the psalm carries the imagery of 
mighty scepter, which is a symbol of royal power. It mentions rule and power. And as I said, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, if you track this back, is this mysterious character who arises in the Old Testament, particularly in Genesis 14, verses 17 through 24, where it says, after his, speaking of Abraham, after his return from the defeat of the Kedar Lamar and the king who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And so just in this small passage, we see he is a king. More specifically, he's the king of Salem, which could also be the Hebrew word shalom, thus the king of peace. And the name Melchizedek as well means, is actually literally translated king of righteousness. And Genesis tells us that he was a priest of God most high. All these things point to this passage. And this is all to say, the things that are above are best categorized as the things of Christ's kingdom. For only Christ is the embodiment of the Old Testament Melchizedek. He is the only one who's the true king of peace, the true king of righteousness, and the ultimate priest of God Most High. We might consider then Christ's own words from Matthew chapter 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. To put it succinctly, believers seek the things that are above by deliberately and daily committing ourselves to the values of the heavenly kingdom and living out those values. And so we can go on and see three particular things in this passage. We can see that we are to set, that we must do some setting, that is to set our minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are of earth. This is a regular concern for Paul, who wrote to the letter of, to the Romans in his letter to them, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And similarly, in his letter to the Philippians. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, what, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. You see, the scriptures present us with a decidedly contemplative view of faith and religion and following God. Which does not mean, by the way, that the Christian faith is for academics alone, but rather that it calls for reflection and meditation. As one commentator explains, Paul calls for a deliberate act of the mind to focus on the things that are above, calling Christians to direct their minds away from the things of earth. 
Bible scholar Ken Birding writes, the word translated mind or mindset concerns more, however, than just your thinking process. Again, it's not just for academics, not just for those with their head in the clouds, but it is for those whose feet are firmly planted on earth. Listen to the rest of this quote from Dr. Birding. Even that is a significant part of it, the setting your mind uh, on the thinking process, in addition to what we think about, the word also refers to what you desire and the way your life is directed to what you desire. I'm talking about the overall orientation of your life, including what you think about and whether your thoughts and desires are directed toward the things of the spirit or whether they are directed toward the flesh. Another commentator said that one's attitude, ambitions, and whole outlook on life are modeled by Christ or by Christ's relation to the believer and one's allegiance to him takes precedent over all earthly allegiances. As we Christians are called to seek the things of the kingdom, in other words, we are called to deliberately direct our mind and attitude and even our ambitions to heaven. One of my favorite hymns puts it this way. Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and have and ever hope to be. All my ambitions, hopes, and plans, I surrender these into your hands. For it is only in your will that I am free. It's important to note that when Paul directs us away from earthly things, he does not intend us to forgo or withdraw from society entirely. What he intends is that we surrender to Christ the entirety of the manner of our lives. But we must note that Paul is not suggesting that the Christian withdraw from commerce and any possible prominence or achievement. As Pastor Kent Hughes puts it, Taken to absurdity, there would never be a Christian surgeon or chief. There would be no excellence. The difference is that the Christian is no longer to see those sorts of things as if they are all that matter. Moreover, his mindset is to be dominated by the things that are above. Paul is precise in his command, set your mind on the things that are above and keep it that way. Implicit here is the idea of concentration. We must also remember that our mindset is a deliberate act of will. And so all, all of that to simply say that, that we as Christians must undertake some serious set, setting. So we've talked about seeking, but we also need to set our minds. And Paul ties both the seeking and the setting to the logic of your and my death and resurrection in Christ. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Let's be clear, this concept of hiddenness of life is about two things. It's first about security. If our lives are hidden in Christ, then they are hidden in a secure place where, as the hymnist says, no power of hell nor scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. But more than just security, it is about revealing. 
All things in the Bible that are hidden are hidden with a purpose, and that purpose is in order to be revealed at the appropriate time. The message of the gospel was hidden at first, and then revealed in the coming of Christ. The way of blessing to all nations was hidden at first, and then revealed in Christ's extension to the Gentiles. So this claim is fundamentally about waiting for the time in which Christ in whom we are secure, reveals us to be in him, to be with him. And thus Paul follows up with when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is the hope of Colossians. Paul told us as much in the first verse of the letter. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Notice how the hope and the gospel are connected. The logic of the Christian faith is thus. Hear the gospel. Believe the gospel. Place your hope in heaven in Christ and watch your faith in Christ and your love for the saints grow. The new age of the kingdom is coming, and in some ways it is already here in part, and in as much as Christ has brought this kingdom to this world, so we can experience it. So why do we not experience it? Why do we not feel all the time as if we're citizens of the kingdom, as if we're in Christ? Why do so many of us find Paul's joy and Peter's dedication so foreign? Why do we struggle to live in the reality that our lives are hidden with Christ and God? Often it is because of a misunderstanding of what eternal life is. The promise of heaven is not merely an extension of biological life into infinity with all the frustrating obstacles of everyday life removed. Eternal life is about life to the full, which is life in God's presence. Life the way he always intended it. And we often don't experience eternal life because we have some sort of, as they say today, fear of missing out. We think setting our minds fully on heaven will result in a diminishment of pleasure and joy. With the exception of scripture, I have found that no author presents as potent a cure for such false thoughts as C.S. Lewis. In The Weight of Glory, he writes, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slums because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. We are seeking and setting, recognizing the gospel of life from the death by the power of God's grace. That is only one of the criticisms which the heavenly-minded person might encounter. The fear of missing out keeps us 
from living in the kingdom as we can. But we might also be in the crosshairs from what was originally a criticism from Marxism, that such exhortations to focus on the kingdom is really just an opiate for doling our senses so that we might be taken advantage of, that we might not invest ourselves in the pleasures of this world. Again, Lewis is actually helpful here, too. In Mere Christianity, he writes, This does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought most of the next period. The apostles themselves who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get a little of earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. It seems a strange rule, but something like it can be seen at work in other matters. You see, what Lewis says is thinking about heaven does not make our lives irrelevant. Rather, it understands appropriately that thinking about heaven tells us how this world ought to be. As such, seeking the things above will encourage us to strive for justice and mercy and truth and love. Think about what the world would be like if the 2.6 billion Christians who lived in it strived to look like Jesus, setting their minds on where he is at the right hand of the Father. If we did such things frequently and faithfully, we would see glimpses of the kingdom everywhere we looked. For now we wait, but this season of coronavirus and disruption has modified, actually, the way I understand waiting. You see, there are really two kinds of waiting. One type came after the initial disruption of the pandemic, and it started to seem like it was winding down and many of us had gotten used to working and family and social procedures around coronavirus and how it was... Uh, infecting and impacting our society. And if you had any free time left, it was mostly spent waiting. It might have been the sort of frenetic waiting where you take up a new hobby, but it was still ultimately passive in relationship to the desire. In other words, your sourdough starter didn't make it okay that you couldn't gather with your friends or go on a normal date with your significant other or blow off some team with your city softball league. It was a mere filling of time in anticipation of the end of all the craziness we are currently experiencing. The second kind of waiting is a sort of productive waiting in contrast to the first. It's active waiting that is most associated with something that I think of as like celebrations, particularly weddings. Think about a wedding, for example, where the Parties involved in the wedding prepare in the process of waiting. The gown or dress, tux or suit, is meticulously selected. Colors and patterns are arranged and decided upon. The location is chosen. It's often decorated or, on occasion, 
you hunt long and hard for a place that was, rather than prepared by human hands, seems prepared with natural beauty. The notifications go out, engagement announcements, save the date, wedding invitations. Rituals are reflected upon and thought about. Counseling is undertaken. Preparations are made and waiting takes place. But it's an act of waiting which gets us ready for the day of consummation. The latter, that second type of active waiting is what Paul is calling us to here. We wait for the kingdom to come fully in the person of Jesus. It has come in part and now we wait. For we have died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God so that when Christ appears, we too will appear with him in glory of God and to experience the unbridled goodness in his presence. And until then, Santa Cruz Baptist, seek and set your minds on heaven's king.